0: Bless Andy, Lord, to convey to us exactly what your uh, Holy Spirit would have us hear. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen.
1: Amen. All right. Titus 1, and uh, I would love it if somebody would be willing to read the first chapter.
2: Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete so that you might put what remained into order but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work.
1: All right, thank you. So, um, before we went to the break, we were just talking about um, this incredibly important chapter. This is uh, along with First Timothy three, one of the two uh, key key chapters on filtering. Candidates for elders, elder and deacon; those are the two offices that there are in the New Testament for church leadership, and no other. Um, Churches have the freedom to have other other roles, like trustee or directors, or you know different titles. But biblically, you've got these two offices: you have got elder and deacon. Um, Elder in this text has another uh, another title as well. Uh, what What is it? What's the other title for elder? Sure. Well, that's an old English title, overseer. Bishop is just old English for overseer. Bisciope means one who oversees. And it comes from the Greek uh, episkopos. So you got, but that's just uh, interchangeable. How do we know that those titles, elder and, and overseer, are interchangeable? These are interchangeable titles. It's got to be in the text. Well, it's yeah. in the, well, yeah, because he's talking about elders and without breaking, you know, his stride, he says, well, by the way, since an, you know, an overseer, blah, blah. It's like, well, wait a minute. What do you, it's just a different title for the same thing. So he uses those titles interchangeable interchangeably. And that's what we, we have a sense here. Now, as we we're picking up from last time, why is it important that these men who serve as elder, we'll just stick with that title, uh, be filtered? Why is a filter so important? Not just anybody in the church can be an elder.
3: Well, it's described here that the standard that they meet mm-hmm. and they're held to a higher
4: standard because they're responsible for the congregation.
1: Okay, so there's a standard that, this, that the men, these men have to, have to meet. Uh, and they are men, we don't need to go into that. Titus doesn't address it, but 1 Timothy 2 does. There's a direct connection between the end of first Timothy two and then first Timothy three. First Timothy three is that chapter's filtering of elders. But before he even gets to that, and at the end of chapter two, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. Goes into all that whole um, reason why. And then he goes right into, if anyone desires to be an elder, he desires a beautiful or noble task. So if you remove the chapter division between 1 Timothy 2 and 3, he's going right into that topic. So women can't be elders. I think that it says more than that. Women also can't teach men in a formal setting. It's not just that they can't be elders. They can't teach men. Uh, It's not just a role. It's a function. All right. But at any rate, uh, elders have to be men, uh, but they have to be filtered men. They have to be men who have reached a certain proficiency in the Christian life. All right. Um, the thief on the cross, if he had survived, he's not a sanctified man. All right. Came to faith in Jesus. Yes. But still a, a recent thief. You know, he's, he needs to grow. They can't, the guy can't, can't, you know, say today, you know, he'll it, it, come to faith in Christ. And then later that afternoon, be an elder. Um, you know, it says very plainly in another place, he can't be a recent convert. Alright, it's important for him not to be a recent convert. So simply put, for the most part, First Timothy three and Titus one is Christianity at work in someone's life for a while. That's all. It's it's nothing radically different than being a Christian. It's just that the individual is good at being a Christian. They they are mature, a mature Christian. That's what we're looking at.
2: Andy in verse nine, he Listen. gives the so that mm-hmm. as kind of the explanation for Okay. All this is good so that mm-hmm. he may be able to give instruction of in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. They've got responsibility here. Sure. And if they're a brand new converter, they're probably not going to have that proficiency in the word.
1: Right. And in 1 Timothy 4, he tells Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely. So there's a combination of lifestyle and sound doctrine married together in an elder. So this individual is living a holy life, and they are teaching right doctrine. There's that combination. You want to see them both together. And, and why? Because he left them in Crete to, uh, to appoint elders in every town, and this is tied directly to local church ministry. So the importance, big picture of all of this is how important the local church is in God's plan for the world. The, the local church is essential to God's plan for the world. Healthy local churches. And healthy local churches begin with these filtered leaders. It begins with godly men who lead the church well and wisely. It starts there. And so fundamentally then to plant a healthy local church you need these godly uh, elders in place. And so we have these criteria. Any question, big picture about this? Yeah.
0: The beginning of verse seven, uh, Paul uses the uh, phrase, as God's steward.
1: Mm Yeah.
0: So that's not just anybody.
1: What does that, Jim? What does that mean to you or anybody? What does it mean as God's steward, as stewards of God here?
0: A a very uh, well equipped servant Mm -hmm. knows what the master wants, knows how to carry it out, uh, is trusted. He's God's steward. He's not just Paul's steward. Right. Paul describes him that way. But I don't know beyond that because I actually was thinking of the word steward, so I need to look up steward.
1: Yeah, a steward is a servant who's um, entrusted by the um, master to manage his property, to make wise decisions about his property, his money especially, but his estate. So uh, as I work through uh, my preaching, I'm uh, five weeks ahead, and I finished my last sermon on Mark 13. So Mark 13 is the whole chapter on um, eschatology, on the destruction of the temple, and then the signs of the end of the world and all that. And both in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13, he ends with uh, effectively a steward question. Uh, he says in Matthew 24, "Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in the household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that man who's uh, who finds him doing. Uh, the master finds him doing so when he returns. You can sit next to me, Chris, if you like. I got I got room here. Come and sit." Calvin's not here today, so, uh, you know, it's just like, (laughs) thanks, brother. Um, And so the idea then is the steward has been left by the master to feed the household. All right? I see myself as a pastor as entrusted with that responsibility. My job is to feed the master's servants while he's gone. It reminds me of, of John 21 when Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. In Mark 13... He's the doorkeeper who keeps watch for the master. I also see that as my role. I'm supposed to specially be looking out and tell you the master's coming. You need to be ready because the master's coming. He's going to call you all to account. And so my job is to feed and to warn. You know, that's what I get to do, and other things too. But um, so that's very much on my mind today. Um, but you know, I know we're doing Titus. But I feel like as a pastor, my job is to feed the flock in the in the in the case of the absentee landowner or household householder, and to uh, stay at the door and keep watch for the master master's coming. All right. Now, a steward. The essence of this, and we see this again and again in these parables, is an absentee authority figure who is going to come back at some point and call the servants to account. We see this again and again and again, like the 10,000 talents, right? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. Or the five talents and the two talents and the one talent, right? He entrusts his property and leaves. The vineyard owner plants the vineyard, rents it out, and leaves. We all, all get this leaving thing. He's gone. You don't see him and so faith is all about what you do for the invisible owner of everything in light of the fact that someday he's going to call you to account for everything. So that's, Jim, you, it's important. The idea of stewardship is vital. I have to see my ministry as a pastor, as an elder, as a stewardship. All right? It says in Acts 20, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. That sets Jesus apart from me and from Chris as an elder and all the elders. We didn't shed our blood for the church. Jesus did. So we are under him and he's going to call us to account for his church that he shed his blood for. We have to give him an account. That's the idea here. So he says, the reason I left you in Crete is that you would appoint elders in every town who are going to be like this. Now we'll get into the filtering list. This is vital. You know, you look through um, this list of criteria to be an elder. Alright, an elder must be blameless. Alright, we start right there. Alright, uh, do we have any other translations? ESV, what does that say? Above reproach? Is that the, what ESV says? Above reproach? Okay. Alright, either way, um, what does that mean? Above reproach or blameless? Let's start negatively. What doesn't it mean? That means sinless. Sinless or perfect. You could think it might be that. Blameless might, might imply sinless. But, Lynn, why do we know it doesn't mean that? We're all sinners. We're all sinners, meaning the office will stay empty. I mean, there's no point in reading, reading any further. First John 1 covers this very, very plainly. If anyone says, I have not sinned, he's a liar. All right? We all sin. James says we all stumble in many ways. All right? So we're, we're, we're not looking for sinless men. Well, then what does it mean? If it doesn't mean perfect, what does it mean then? Above reproach or blameless?
5: People who are not actively engaged in stuff. I I guess, look, I want to think about what I think.
1: I'm hoping for a single day, Rick, like that. I'm I'm being honest with you guys. (laughs) If I could have one day, (laughs) maybe, Rick, you've had a whole week of, of blamelessness or perfection. I don't know. What do you, I, I, I hear you, I think, to some degree, that not habitually sin. But anyway, more, more thoughts on this. It means their
6: life is free of that sinful nature. means they're keeping their um, habits and behaviors that would, that would impede I them from what striving. striving. Striving, okay. a, <clears throat> striving
4: uh, in our attempt to become more sinless, to become more like Christ, part of our sanctification,
1: is a striving. I like it. Do you guys see the problem, though? Yeah. All right, there's a problem here. Romans 7 is the problem. The very thing I hate, I do. And the good things I want to do, I don't do. Who is that true of? Everybody. So whatever language you put, you're going to snag on it. This is the way I see it. I think it has to do with a horizontal appraisal of the individual by other people. It's an audience issue. If you were to poll the audience of this person who knows this person, no one could give any reason why he couldn't be an elder. That's the way I see it. He has lived such a life and his reputation is so intact that he's not claimed to be sinless. He's not saying that he's got a perfect marriage or his kids aren't saying he's a perfect dad. None of that because then, then nobody's that way. But all of them would say, if you were to ask his wife, do you think this man would be a good elder? She would say, yes, I do. If you asked his kids, do you see any reason why he couldn't serve as an elder? They would say, no. People who know this man well would say, I can think of no reason why he couldn't serve as an elder. That's what I think it means above reproach. There's no reproach that could be put on him say, no, he can't serve. There's There's no story circulating in the community that says, look, that guy did X, he did Y, he's not fit to serve. That's, I think, what it means. How do What do you guys think about that as blameless or above reproach? No one in the community could have a good reason why he couldn't serve as an elder.
6: Do I, do I see that as being not hypocritical? In other words, saying that I am pure when you're not pure?
1: I think it's just a matter of honesty. Um, you know, Paul wrote as an apostle in Romans 7, the very thing I hate, I do. In my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in my members that are waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. He's being honest. He's saying, I've not attained sinless perfection. But at the same time, he has, Paul has a, a, achieved an ascendancy over his flesh so that he regularly puts it to death, I think. That's the way I would see it. I think to some degree we're all open to the charge of hypocrisy. If hypocrisy is, I espouse a standard that I don't keep, is there a standard we could espouse that we perfectly keep? There isn't. So I think, any, any more thoughts on that? Friend? Yeah, I, and it's a good, and I'm aware of it. I'm acutely aware of it. All right, I have to get up and preach week after week after week. It is a spiritual battle for me to do that. You know, I'll, I'll say to my family, I'll say, you know, when we had a house full of kids, I'll say to my wife, my kids, I said, please deliver me to the pulpit spirit filled tomorrow morning. Please <laughs> help me out here. That's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for sinlessness. I'm just looking that my conscience isn't assaulting me as I walk up the steps to go preach. You see what I'm saying? I'm not claiming to be perfect. So... No. but that's the goal the goal we're aiming for perfection we're looking for that yes clay
6: i think it's also being blameless is also willing to be led willing to be taught to what god the father has imparted to you to be in that capacity as an elder or overseer or anything else like that
1: yeah i mean we have to follow you know you're saying follow me as i follow christ so there's a submissiveness but i would say it starts there he's a recent convert he begins following jesus and he's been following jesus now for years and in following Jesus, he's been putting his his sin to death. Uh, he's been been weakening his sin habits, you know. Uh, and we're going to walk through a lot of the negatives here. He's not given to, you know. We, Rick pointed out a few weeks ago, it's a matter of self control. He's achieved a level of self control in his life where he's not a drunkard. He's not given to rage, you know. He's under. He's a man under control, and that's what we're looking for. All right. So it starts with blameless or above reproach. And why is that? Well, because our reputation matters. Elders do a lot of their ministry out of their reputation, right? Um, if you could think of six good reasons why this person shouldn't serve as an elder, you're not, not going to want to get marital counseling from him. You're not going to want to get any counsel from him. You know, you, it's, it's hard to listen to him teach the word of God. So it's important what his reputation is. So an elder must be blameless or above reproach. And then it talks about his marriage, the husband of one wife, or literally a one-woman man is what it says. That's more more literal from the Greek, a one-woman man. So what does that mean to you, a hus- the husband of one wife or a one-woman man? I still struggle
3: with that one. Okay.
1: You're struggling, just in terms of having a good marriage. I think, Herb, is what you mean. Yeah, all of us married men know uh, that that's a challenge. All right, let's let's put just generally, after we've gone from blameless or above reproach, the next spotlight that gets put on is on the marriage. What does that tell you? Just aside from what it means, husband one wife, that the spotlight goes on the man's marriage. What does that tell you? Highly important.
2: God puts marriage in a, in a very high
5: place. place. I mean, it strikes me as the most intimate human relationship that
1: we're to have, probably. Yeah, and there's a logic here with this parenting. Um, well, it's in First Timothy. But basically, if you don't know how to manage your own household, how can you manage God's house? You don't have the same logic working with the, with the marriage, but I think it's there, it's implied. If the guy can't marry, manage his own marriage, something's significantly wrong with him. That's what's implied here. Go get your marriage worked out, get it figured out before you come try to lead the church. I think that's effectively what he's saying. The marriage needs to be healthy. Again, not perfect. Not going to be perfect, but he's got a healthy marriage. All right. So the spotlight's on the, on the marriage because of the significance of the relationship.
3: Ephesians 5, tells us that the marriage relationship symbolizes the relationship between Christ and the church. So if you can't handle the symbolism well, you're not going to handle the right relationship between Christ and his church very well.
1: Yeah, very true. Lynn, go ahead, brother.
3: Well, you mentioned some time ago in, in, uh, in this
4: room that we also, as we're managing, we need to listen to wives as our closest counselor because they know us better than anybody else. But at the same time, doesn't mean you have to do everything your wife says to do, but you need to listen.
1: Right. Yeah, I I think that is one of the best ways to think about a wife. If she's a godly woman and you have been discipling her, Like, you know, fundamentally, the idea of a pastor and elder is he needs to have been pastoring or eldering in his family first. And so he's been a shepherd of his family and he's got that running. So, and the first is his wife. He's been washing her with water through the word. You know, that's a discipleship kind of relationship. And she's been growing so that she can give you really good counsel for years to come. She's been drinking in God's word and she's an excellent counsel giver. As it says in Proverbs 31, the heart of her husband safely trusts in her. Safely trusts in what about her? Well, at least in her mindset, her counsel, as you said, Lynn, she's able to give good advice. So that's excellent. But you've got this fundamental relationship, the most significant relationship there is in the world, the most significant human relationship. The first human relationship ever created uh, was the marriage relationship. It's very, very significant. All right, And so if the marriage is dysfunctional, the man is disqualified. That seems to be what this is implying here. If the marriage, if the man's marriage is dysfunctional, he's disqualified, not from Christianity, not from heaven, but from serving in this role as an elder. Is he permanently disqualified? Chris, you said no.
2: I I would say no, because he can rectify that situation by submitting himself um, to godly instruction Um, one woman man he's yeah he he may have messed up here but as long as he's not out chasing six other women at the same time um he is um recoverable um
1: yeah yeah if you say no to that and by the way we had to walk through all this um the issue of can a divorced man serve as an elder um, the Baptist tradition that I inherited here with the Southern Baptists and and here at this church was absolutely not. It was just unthinkable. But the thing that troubled me about it is, it seemed to be like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit—an unforgivable sin. There's no way to recover. And that seemed to be more traditional than expositional. Do you see what I'm saying? Does this say he must never have been divorced? Does the verse say that? No, it doesn't. It doesn't even mention the word divorce. It mentions that he is a one woman man or a husband of one wife. And so we could well imagine then that an individual could have sinned in this area in the past, but have so lived his life for a long time since then as to have, have, you know, um, uh, been able to recover and put this area of his life on display. Um, the thing that I found difficult about the unforgivable sin aspect of divorce, divorced men could never serve, is that there's no other sin that gets treated that way when it comes to an elder. Can the person have been a recovered axe murderer? Absolutely. No verse that says that they can't. Can the person be a recovering arsonist? No problem. Kleptomaniac, sure. Divorced man, never. Didn't make any sense. It seemed disproportional to me. It seemed that we have to read the text for what it literally does say and not what it doesn't say, and then say, is the man's marriage exemplary? Do you think that 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 requires that the man's marriage, if he is married, we'll talk about that in a moment, if he is married, be exemplary? Is that required of the role? His marriage needs to be exemplary. Absolutely. Yes, I agree. It has to be a good example to the church. Why is that? Why is an exemplary marriage helpful in the church? Role modeling, that kind of, why is an exemplary marriage helpful in the church?
2: Because it models Christ and the church, the, okay. the, the relationship there, and it gives those newer Christians something to shoot for, something sure. to, to model their lives. After.
1: Or new, newlyweds. All right, you're in a healthy church, you just got married. Is it reasonable for that young couple to say, teach us how to do marriage well? We want to have a good marriage. Yes. Where should they go? To the church, and especially the elders of the church. This is what, and a lot of things are not book learning, they're life learning. Come and see how we relate. Come and see how we work things out in our household, how we manage our household's affairs. How we do a division of labor, what we do with our money, how we pray together. A lot of those things are, are learned by observation. They're learned by role modeling. And if the elders have exemplary marriages, then they can, they can set a good example for young couples. Does that make sense? And so I think that's the reason. It's because of the power of, of a good example. All right? So they need to have, the elder needs to have, if he is married, an exemplary marriage. Not a perfect marriage, but an exemplary marriage. Now, does he have to be married to be an elder? Does the verse seem to say that he has to be married? Yes, it does. <laughs> so many people say if you're not married, you can't be an elder. And that would be a simplistic and rather wooden application of this, all right? Let's take, for example, you have to have a wife to be an elder. That is the simplest way of reading one woman man, right? Well, what if your wife dies and you continue to serve as an elder? Well, in that pattern of exegesis no you're out your wife just got you know cancer and now you're done being an elder too by the same exegesis you see what i'm saying by the same approach you have to have a wife to be an elder all right so once you say a widower is not disqualified from serving as an elder why would he be you know he's been serving faithfully his wife died that would be a pretty hard message. Imagine all the body of elders going and grieving. It's like, so sorry you lost your wife. By the way, let's have your elder membership card today, too. You're, you're out as an elder. And imagine delivering that message. What are you going to say, Her? Your badge. Yeah, give, give me your elder badge. But, I mean, that's pretty harsh. And it's just not biblical. That's not a right way to understand this verse. So, how about a man that's never been married? And a man that's never been married serve as an elder. Paul is a great example all right so if you say no then the very man who wrote these words is disqualified all right jesus is disqualified jesus could not be an elder be a great savior just not an elder all right (laughs) it's like you know the two greatest teachers of all time on marriage were unmarried men i mean think about that all right jesus and paul both of them unmarried men. So it just seems though I understand a wooden literalistic exegesis would say you have to have a wife to be an elder. The fact of Jesus and Paul being thereby disqualified seems troublesome to many. And they would say, I I think that's going too far. So generally the way we articulate is if he has a wife, he needs to have an exemplary marriage. I think that's about the way I understand this. Does that make sense? Other than that, you're going to have to eliminate single men, you have to eliminate widowers, and that seems to be beyond what most people want to do. But if the man's married, his marriage is exemplary. Any other questions or comments about it? Well, you have to work on words, don't you? I mean, that's what theologians do. That's what what I do as a pastor. I've come up with these phrases like, blameless doesn't mean perfect. It means there is no reputational problem with him that would prevent him from serving. That's what I came to. And then husband and one wife working through divorce and singleness and all that. Does that make sense? Any other questions about that before we go on to the next criteria? I think a lot of people
2: uh, equate that to someone who's just married to one person. They may have been divorced before, but they're just married to one person now. That's not my case. I I think you know my case, but uh, it's a thing that's troublesome to anyone who's been through divorce, like I did. Mm-hmm. And uh, same thing with Judy. We both lost our spouses because they left us. I didn't leave her. She left me and the same way with Judy. But we have a, what I consider a perfect marriage now. We just we've been married 37 years and I'm, I, know, I think she is an exemplary wife. And I've tried to be that with her
1: well it was a process we had to go through the process here at this church you know we started what we started with was what i call gender and authority but what people simplistically called women deacons all right And i remember after we transitioned to plurality of elders and had women deacons a number of those dissident people who left our church in a huff thought that i should apologize to all those women that i precluded from them serving as deacons you guys remember all this I was like, look, guys, I was always clear. It was how we were defining the deacon role at the time. But people have a hard time listening. I don't know what it is. They just have a hard time listening. But we had to deal with each topic in its turn. So we had to first deal with gender and authority and accept the faulty definition of deacon that FBC had at the time. We'll just accept it. We'll deal with it later. So We dealt with gender and authority first. Then we dealt with plurality of elders and then understood deacon within that. And then in due time, we dealt with divorced men and can they serve? So it took time to, you know, step-by-step step to deal with all those things. And uh, this is where we've come to. And believe me, there are some conservative churches, Bible-believing churches that would look on us as somewhat liberal for having women deacons and for allowing divorced men to serve as elders. But I just think they're being simplistic. I don't think that they've thought through the, the verses, you know, in the same way we have. We're not trying to be liberals or denigrate the word of God. Not at all. We're trying to be faithful to it. Um, but... Yeah, people will think what they think. And I do respect churches that don't think that women can serve as deacons because it says that deacons must be the husband of one wife. I understand that. I know why they say it, and I respect it. But anyway, let's keep moving. All right, an elder must be blameless, the husband of one wife. And then it says a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So now the spotlight has moved a little bit off from the marriage onto what? What's the topic now? kids. Parenting, all right, specifically the man as a father. What kind of father is he? Again, like I asked about the marriage, why is that significant? The fact that the kind of father he is is relevant to whether he can serve as an elder. What does that teach you?
3: Well, he controls family. And he teaches his children what it doesn't. Deal with, I
4: think, is you teach your children when they're grown. One goes this way, one goes
1: that way. Well, now you bring up an, in, a very important topic. All right, are we talking about minor children here, or any offspring?
6: Any any child that, that, that parent helps bring into this world, it should be
1: anyone. Yes, not just so adult children. So, like, if my thirty-year-old apostatizes, I should resign as a pastor.
2: No.
1: So I, and Then it's not just any children, it's minor children. What do I mean by minor, minor? Under the authority. They're under your authority. They're under your household authority. Therefore, they're relevant to what kind of man you are, right? All right, so here, here's one of the, I would say one of the greatest heartbreaks there is for any Christian man is to have one of your grown kids not walking with Jesus. Would you guys agree? That's an utterly heartbreaking situation right? Does it necessarily mean that you are not a good father if your grown children are not walking with Jesus? Does it necessarily, could it mean yes, but does it necessarily mean you failed as a father because your grown kids aren't walking with Jesus?
2: Satan wants you to think that way.
1: Okay. Now, clearly I understand fathering is complex. No one would claim, no one would claim that they were a perfect father. I remember I was at a conference recently and something hit me, we're, we're doing testimonies, uh, among the Gospel Coalition leaders, and these are all, most of them pastors, and they were just talking about their kids and their lives, and they're mostly my age or older, a lot of these men. Um, and it occurred to me, and I texted um, one of my kids, uh, and I said, it occurs to me that you are a Christian both because of and in spite of me. So what do you think about that statement? You are a Christian both partially, I said partially, partially, because of me and in spite of me. What are your thoughts on that statement?
0: It can't be completely because of you, because we know the scripture says that God
1: right. intervenes. Right. So that's why I said partially, and the greatest work is God's work. But I mean, at the human level, we have a role. So then let's talk about that. That I played a positive role in my kids' conversion, and I also was an obstacle to my kids' conversion. Right. What are your thoughts about that? How would I be an obstacle?
5: Well, they've probably seen mm -hmm. your sin
1: from time to time. Probably, but it's not guaranteed, Rick, that they've seen my (laughs) sin from time to time.
5: (laughs) My (laughs) Bible. Read my Bible, man.
1: Right. Well, they get to keep the camera rolling after you all go home on Sunday afternoon. They get to go home with me on Sunday afternoon. The camera keeps rolling, and it doesn't end Sunday afternoon and evening. It keeps rolling all week long. So it, we're not perfect. We already said that none of these men are perfect. And so your kids see that, all right? They, they, man, you know how Psalm 139 says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. Well, your kids do that too. They know you and you know them, right? We know each other. So again, we're not saying that this man is a perfect father, but he has played, he has faithfully played the role that God entrusted to him concerning his kids' salvation and, his, and their formation, right? So, you know, in, in 1 Timothy, it says that the man's children must believe. They must be believers. 1 Timothy, it says that. But here it just says that, they, yeah, no, it says it here. Their children believe, that's right, I'm sorry, and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. So again, let's imagine... That we're talking about minor children here. So what are we talking about here?
6: Those who have not gone astray.
1: Okay. But so they're minor children and they're not open to the charge of being wild or disobedient. What does that mean?
2: They're willingly submissive to their parents.
1: Well, how do they get that way? Magic. <laughs> Magic What is their nature? What is the child's nature when brought into this world? right? It is sinful. It is intensely selfish. Yes. Intensely selfish. Would you not say an infant is a 100% self-focused human being? Absolutely. All right. How do they get to be other-centered? How do they get to be other-centered at the dinner table with good manners? Training. They're not born that way. They, They have to be trained to table manners. They have to be trained to say please and thank you.
6: I think it's also discipled and disciplined at the same time, too.
1: Yeah, they have to be trained.
6: I learned when I was younger being disciplined and discipled and being punished as well. I mean, yeah, I, I learned that a lot.
1: So if they're not wild, if your kids are not wild, if these kids are not wild, what's the opposite? What, do, what would we say is the opposite of that, then? Obedient. They're obedient. Wouldn't you say, Rick, that it goes back to self-control, that they're self-controlled people. I mean, they, they know how to behave. all right? They know how to behave in church. All right? One of the things we worked on was getting our kids to sit quietly in the pew and listen. By the time they were teens, they did. They didn't start that way. <laughs>
5: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, this is. A practical one I, you know I spent my career in as a financial advisor for decades and I want to tell you something I saw i worked with a lot of Christian families also and what I observed is it was really a rare situation where all the children were moving the same direction there was almost always if you had three or four it was almost always one that really went awry I was just And so I'm, and I'm bringing that up just to say how many of your children need to be obedient and self-controlled to qualify. I'm saying that in jest, but.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. I mean, um, the New England, the New England Puritan pastor's family sat in chairs under the pulpit facing the congregation. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i warned my kids i said let me tell you something all right we could do that we can get you guys and we're going to sit you facing the congregation yeah i,
5: was sitting 25.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't know i, I
5: Dad, yeah I my change for them.
1: yeah for sure but so the thing is when they come home from the hospital and they come home they are completely self-focused it is good parenting to train them to behave well to be socialized to be in favor with god and man um, that takes training. It takes diligence. It's an effort by both the husband and wife. And if, that, if the man is an elder-level man, he knows how to do that. He knows how to do that. And it's a, a blending. Uh, I've thought often in, in um, Romans eleven twenty-two. I think it is, uh, where he's talking about God's sovereignty and salvation. He says, consider, therefore, the goodness and severity of God. An interesting pairing. Consider the goodness and severity of God. Well, there's a goodness and severity and good fathering, too. There's a blending of, of affection for the father and fear of the father, a reasonable fear, all right? Like the healthiest fear that your kids can have is they don't want to disappoint you. Does that make sense? They are so loyal to you, and they care so much about you, they, it would hurt them to disappoint you. Like, one of the worst things that they could ever hear from you is, I'm disappointed in how you acted today. Well, what kind of man do you have to be where you get your kids to that point? That's all I'm saying. Um, along the way, there is early on disciplines, controversial about corporal punishment, but there's a wise use of disciplines. There's a wide, wise use of the rod, so to speak, either literal or metaphorical, that trains the children, little by little, to be obedient, to be self-controlled, to fit in well, be polished. It takes time. Yeah.
4: So the, the in spite of uh, mm-hmm. comment you made, yep. so in spite of me as a father, one does goes in the right direction, mm-hmm. and one goes in the wrong direction. So then you start reflecting years later, as they're adults, what should I have done differently? And it's plain. You didn't do what you should have done. It's a hard thing to, to uh, realize that you could have done a better job as a parent in this case, and apparently you did all right here because it
1: stuck. Yeah. It's very humbling. I, you know, I think everything in the Christian life is designed to humble us. It really is. And parenting is humbling. Marriage is humbling. These are two very humbling things. And so a godly man, he's not feeling he's perfect. He's not feeling he's a perfect father. He's a humble, it's a humbling role. Um, you're talking about the complexity of a human being and, a sin, and their sin nature and the struggles they have with, with sin. You know, I, I was talking to one of my, uh, uh, one of my kids and uh, all of our kids, we homeschooled all our kids. They all felt we were way too strict. Um, they all felt we were legalistic at certain times. And all of them have asserted, at different times, they were going to do things very differently with their kids, all right? They all did. And, uh, and the most recent time that I heard this individual say how much differently he was going to do it with her kids, um, I said, well, keep in mind, your kids are going to have a sin nature, and you're going to have to deal with that. You're going to have to deal with their disobedience. You'll have to deal with their sins in a wise way. And you're going to have the same tools at your disposal that we have at ours. You're going to have the carrot and the stick. You're going to have the, the goodness and severity aspect. You're going to pray with them. You're going to, you know, and you'll do it your way, and you'll make mistakes. That's what I said. Clay?
6: You know, it's interesting because there's a comparative difference from, for me. Um, you know, May of this year will be 14 years ago that you and I had that forgiveness talk. Um, and, you know, it's not been easy because what Brother Lynn brought up is, you know, um, me being the person that had to hear I was going to be just like my biological father and, you know, that I was a problem child when I was younger, but, you know, I, I questioned that, and uh, there would be many times when I would sit on the edge of the bed and break down, so when I was going through what I was going through, and I t- had that talk with you, it made all the difference in the world, because I knew, um, you know, that he was, I was being molded and shaped and the person he needed me to be.
1: Mm, it's encouraging, encouraging testimony. testimony it's a hard journey. Uh, I've been humbled. I've been humbled by um, parenting. But getting back to the text here, um, if a man is going to be qualified as an elder, and if he has children, again, you don't have to have children to be an elder, but if he has children, um, he has known how to lead them to faith in Christ, and he's known how to shape and to train their characters so that they fit in well in society. He's been able to do that. I think that's what we're looking at here he's got a healthy marriage, he's got exemplary parenting, not perfect, all right? And it's, and it's relevant. All right, moving on. Verse 7, since an overseer uh, is entrusted with God's work or is a steward of God's work, so let's talk about that phrase. Jim talked about it, um, but could someone go over to Hebrews thirteen seventeen for a minute and uh, read it? Maybe, Chris, you could do that. Hebrews feels good to have a Bible in your hand, though. I, I don't know. I just enjoy <laughs> flipping pages. And I just want you to know, as a pastor, I like to hear the sound of the pages mm-hmm. flipping. You don't have that with the electronic Bibles anymore. Go Hebrews 13,
3: 17. Obey your leaders and <laughs> submit to their authority. They will keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that will be no advantage.
1: Now, the reason I had you read that is, as those who must give an account. All right, so what does that mean to you, Chris, the idea of as those who must give an account?
3: Well, you're going to have to report back to your superior as to how you did in these particular areas. And you've been to stewardship, and there's going to be an account in that stewardship.
1: Yeah, now, Hebrews 13, 17 isn't addressed to the pastor. It's addressed to the congregation, To the followers, to the flock, and it tells the flock to do what? Obey Obey them.
5: It says, "Have confidence in your leaders," which would imply to me that we have responsibility and we need to take seriously in selecting our elders. Yeah, that would be my interpretation. I don't know if you see interesting
1: different translation, but yeah, I think the the simplest translation is obey. Um, and the end result in verse 7, 13, 17 is, so their work will be a joy, not a burden. And what does that mean to you guys, that, that the elders' work, the leaders, spiritual leaders' work, would be a joy, not a burden to them? So that would be of no advantage.
3: A reflection of their attitude. Are they really
6: doing this because they love the Lord and want to share that with others?
1: Yeah. Well, that's on them. But the burden here is on the church. Don't make their life miserable. Do you think there are local churches that make their pastor's lives miserable? Oh yeah. I've heard about them. Go ahead, Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) It's been a long time though. This church makes me happy. I can't tell you guys how delighted I am to serve this church. It's hard for me to even put into words. And it's been that way for decades. So this is a phenomenal church to lead, but I'm just telling you, not every church is. There are some pastor-killing churches out there, and it's like they have no idea that Hebrews 13:17 even exists. Lynn, were you going to say something, brother?
4: Well, this church was a pastor-killing church for years and years and years, yeah. years until changes were made, and the congregation came around to those changes, yeah.
1: Well, I, the thing that's so beautiful about this church, first and foremost, I think, is the delight, the evident delight that the average churchgoer has in hearing God's word. That's beautiful. People come here because they want to hear God's word preached. And it makes it, it, makes it delightful. Um, but anyway, in general, Hebrews 13:17 is addressed to the congregation. Please don't be a pastor-killing church. Obey them, follow them. But the reason I had Chris read that is it links back to Titus. Those men have to give an account. And it links to, Jim, what you said uh, as stewards. Can you read uh, back in Titus 1 um, what it says about stewardship? Uh, Verse 7, I think.
3: Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick
1: tender.
3: Not giving
1: much wine, not violent, not pursuing the skin. Okay, so that's, you and I, Chris, both have the NIV, but Jim has a different translation. ESV says,
0: for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach.
1: Okay, so NIV gave entrusted with God's word. The idea is a steward has been entrusted with something. Something's been given to him, and it's very precious, and that is the church, all right? And so fundamentally, the church is entrusted, entrusted to us. Now, what's so cool about this? this is really cool. Um, could, could I get somebody to read uh, Romans 6.17? Somebody else, Romans 6.17. Very good verse on this.
2: But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart
6: to that form of teaching to which you were
1: committed. All right. That's amazing. Thanks be to God that you, Christians, were obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed or entrusted. All right. So what's really interesting here is the people have been entrusted to a form of teaching. It's like the form of teaching has been personified. So when I, whenever I think about 617, some of it uh, elicits an image of a, of a babysitter. All right? Like imagine a, a couple going out for the evening, and they've got three kids. And they're leaving their three minor kids, young kids, <clears throat> with a babysitter how does the word entrust relate to that situation chris how does that word entrust relate to this
2: you're giving over authority <coughs> over those kids for a limited time to that sitter
1: yeah but along with that is a, there's a there's a stewardship with the sitter
2: yeah you're trusting that that sitter is going to do right do what you want them to do for those children
1: right and and if i were to say to you all right i have a possession chris and I'm going to entrust it to you, what does that tell you about how I feel about the possession? It's very valuable. It's valuable. It's precious. That's what's implied in the word entrust. And so my soul, according to Romans 6, 17, my soul has been entrusted to a form of teaching for safekeeping because my soul isn't done being saved yet. And so I am entrusted to the gospel ministry by God. So how does that relate to an elder? The elder is the gatekeeper and minister of that relationship. Every member of this church has been entrusted to a form of teaching. My job is to deliver that teaching to those members. Does that make sense? So that their souls are kept safe. Their souls can flourish. Their souls can be fed and nourished and protected from sin. Do you see what I'm saying? That's my job as an elder. And so the, the, the precious souls of First Baptist Church, according to Romans six seventeen, have been entrusted to a form of teaching. And that form of teaching is called the gospel in its fullness, in its whole orb ministry. That form of t- teaching is, is going to safely deliver all of the souls that were entrusted to it, to heaven. Safely deliver. My job is to make sure that process keeps happening. And I do that by the ministry of the word of God. I'm doing that right now by this Bible study. Does that make sense? So my job is to be faithful to a stewardship entrusted to me. The people are the stewardship, and the word also is the stewardship. And I have to marry them together. I have to feed the flock with the word of God. And someday, I'm going to be asked to give an account for it. Does that make sense? I'm going to be asked to give an account. All right, another uh, verse on this is 2 Timothy 2.15. I'll just quote it. Study to show yourself approved under God, a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Wow. So that's a call to elders to be really good at the word of God. It says that we're to study to show ourselves approved by God, like a craftsman, a workman, who doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, cutting it straight, orthotome, cutting it straight, handling the word of God properly. you got to learn theology. you got to learn exegesis. you got to learn logic. you got to learn how to handle God's word properly so that the verse says you will not be ashamed. Now, Chris, what would the context of that shame be?
3: Shallow and deep. I mean it would seem to me that just by getting it wrong and having that pointed out, there's you know, you're holding yourself up to be a teacher of God's word, there's shame in getting it wrong. But then the bigger shame is, is you get wrong results from how people respond to your wrong teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, that and that could be catastrophic.
1: Yeah, I would say fundamentally, absolutely, Chris, and I taking all of what Chris just said. And the people of God that have been trusted. For me, the greatest is to have to give Jesus an account for poorly handling the Word of God. Am I going to have to answer to him for whether I rightly handle the Word of God or not? Yes. He's gonna ask me about every sermon I ever preached.
3: You tell about rightly dividing being kind of tent maker language.
1: Mm -hmm. yeah, so Paul was a tent maker, and the, and the Greek word is orthotome. The T-O-M uh, is a cutting word. Um, like, uh, I guess you as a surgeon know it. Uh, so.
4: even, even a uh, tomography, cat,
6: uh, cat scan, is a, you know, it's a radiographic image, like you put a knife through a body.
1: But I think there's a whole array of vocabulary for a surgeon that has T-O-M in it. Right, right. Tomography.
6: cutting devices mm-hmm. and even even certain topographic uh, imagery too mm-hmm. is now moved into tomography
1: of the eye right so that just comes right from the um, the Greek so to cut is orthotome, uh, and ortho means right correctly so right cutting um, you know that's why KJV has rightly dividing so there's a cutting some people, and Chris uh, you know brought this up, and we 've talked about it before, think it goes to paul 's role as a tent maker, so you 're cutting according to a pattern like you could well imagine like I, I love that um, <laughs> uh, wrapping paper now has a grid on the back. Have you seen that? I love the grid, you know what i 'm <laughs> talking about because you know I used to like I would drift you know and then it wasn 't straight, you know, but now you 've got the You've got the grid lines on it. So, but I'm telling you, the Bible doesn't have grid lines superimposed on it. You have to learn how to cut it straight. Does that make sense? You have to do, prop, do it properly. And so the idea is that you're studying to show so that you can rightly divide the word of truth. Why? Because only the rightly, right dividing of the word of truth will feed the flock. And so fundamentally, my job as a pastor is to feed the flock so that their souls will be delivered safely to Judgment Day. And I'm going to give an account for that someday. I'm going to give an account. And so, man, I'll tell you what. When Stephen Furtick mangles the I Am passage, all right? You remember how uh, the burning bush and God shows up? And Moses, and he tells him, take off your sandals for the ground on which you're standing is holy ground. And he's going to send them back to Egypt to get the Israelites out. He says, what shall I say is your name? And he says, tell them I am. I am who I am. And Stephen Furtick said, you know when God said that? He's saying to every one of us, you are. I'm like, that has got to be the worst five to ten seconds of preaching I've heard in my entire life. That is absolutely not what God was saying by saying I am. He's not saying you are also. You, do you get that out of the I am statement that you are also, I am and you are. I said, that sounds like Mormonism. No, God is, in a, God is unique and different. He's going to have to give an account on judgment day for that. And for all of the false teaching he's given or, or others have. So we have to give an account. And fundamentally, that's what we're dealing with. So we're out of time. Chris, would you mind, brother, closing in prayer?
3: Thanks. Oh, thank you for the privilege of being here to be able to see Study, to show ourselves the proof. Father, we do want to rightly handle your word and thank you for uh, the chance to drill into these <laughs> words and praise and pray that you would help us to um, continue to focus on what it means to be blameless and what it means to, have, uh, to be entrusted uh, with certain things. And so Father, we want to take those very seriously, knowing that we will have to give an account uh, for, for what those are, whether we're giving an account as leaders or as we're giving an account as our role as part of a congregation, uh, but Father, we uh, we just thank you and praise you for the privilege of good and shepherd who unfolds the, the good for us like a uh, like a gift every week, and uh, and we thank you that it's rightly cut so that as we're wrapping the present, we don't have gaps in the wrapping where we cut it short or crooked or anything else. Father, help us to. Uh, to get this right and to pass it down to our children rightly. And uh, we thank you for this privilege. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you.